First uh, Peter, First Peter chapter one. Yes, First Peter chapter one. Let me see. Did I mark my? Yes, I did. There we go. First Peter, chapter one, and um, I'm just going to give a little bit of context, background for the uh, for the book of First Peter, the epistle that that Peter wrote to the uh, believers at large that were scattered abroad um, during this time. And I hope that you understand, I know Pastor Phil does, a, does an excellent job of this as well, and, and as well as the other guys who speak, um, Micah and Jeremy. But I really, I like to put an emphasis on, and I, this is a, um, a setting where I'd like to kind of explain our philosophy behind that. But I like to put emphasis on the context of a passage, right? The context, and what I mean by that is the surrounding text, the context, the, the text that goes with it, along with the historical, the geographical, um, the, the, the racial, all those different, the cultural context, all these different things give us part of the meaning of the text. Without, without all those things, it's, it, it can be difficult to interpret uh, the Word of God. And so I've, I try to emphasize whenever I speak on giving the context so that way we don't just pull something out of context and we just, you know, we can use it to mean whatever we want it to mean. And that, unfortunately, verses like uh, Romans 8.28 and Philippians 4.13, different verses like that, well, you know, the, the Romans 8.28, all things work together for good. People will take that out of context and <laughs> they'll just, you know, comment, kind of like just throw it at someone who's going through a tough time. And while it is good to hear during a tough time, a lot of times they don't really say what it means. It's just like, Hopefully this is going to work out for the best. Well, there's a lot more meaning to that, and there's a lot, there's a lot more substance to that passage if you just give it in context. Or Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. And, you know, you, you got kids thinking that they can li- lift a Volkswagen Beetle because the Bible says I can do all things. That's, that's not what that verse means in context, right? So that's why, that's why I like to give a, lot, a little bit of context. And so First Peter, the context is that believers during this time were suffering, right? They, they were being persecuted specifically for their faith, right? And, and the emperor around this time was Nero. And, and whether, whether or not he was exactly the emperor at this specific time, I'm not 100% sure, but we do know that people like him were in power, and he's a great example of what would happen. Nero actually, according to historians, as, as best we know, he was the one to burn the city of Rome, right? He was the emperor of Rome, the most powerful um, empire maybe to ever have existed. He was the emperor of Rome, and he's the one who burnt Rome, you know, because he, e- he was on an ego trip. Or what, There are many different motives that people give, but he was on an ego trip. And Nero burnt Rome himself. Well, you know, obviously, if you do something horrible like that to your own subjects, you know, there's a chance that they might figure out what you did, and they're, they're not going to like what you did. So, what Nero did was he decided he, he, had, a, he had a scapegoat. And that was the, the weird, quote-unquote, the cultish, quote-unquote, religious people that were in existence, existence at that time, the majority of whom were Christians, right? Christianity was a new religion. It was viewed almost as like a cult. Like they thought it was kind of weird. And they didn't really understand all the teachings of Christianity. Like, um, you know, when Jesus said, you know, if you drink of this cup, you drink of my blood, and, and if you, you, know, you eat of my body. All the, they took that a little literally, just like the Jews had done. And so they, it, they thought it was a pretty weird religion. They, you know, they, those Christians are kind of weird people. So he was like, easy scapegoat, we're going to blame it on the Christians. So Christians 
were persecuted heavily during this time because everyone blamed them for burning the capital city. Right? So Christians were under persecution. They were scattered abroad. Right? They had to flee and leave. They were running for their lives. They were, they were basically, um, what's the word? Refugees. Refugees. They were, they were like refugees in, um, in the ancient world during this time. Okay? So that's kind of the context. It doesn't add a ton of meaning to what we're going to talk about tonight, but it, but it does in a sense. I just like to give a little bit of context so we understand what we're talking about. Um, we're going to be in verses 22 all the way through, 20, through the end of the chapter, 25, and I'm going to read those. Then we're going to dive into the text this evening. But we're going to look tonight basically love one another. Love one another. That's, that's basically the topic of what we're looking at tonight. But verse 22 of 1 Peter chapter 1, the Bible says, Seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. For all flesh is grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of grass. The grass withereth, and the flower thereof falleth away, but the word of the Lord endureth forever. And this is the word which, which by the gospel is preached unto you. When we, we're going to walk through this passage, and I've got it kind of outlined a little bit. And the first thing we're going to look at is the process. We, we see a process happening and having happened in verse 22. I, excuse me, it's, it's having happened. But in our lives, this process is continual. Seeing, it says, seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren. Right Earlier in this passage, um, Peter writes to them and, and he says um, in, in verse 15, But as he which called you is holy, so be holy in all manner of conversation. Verse 16, Because it is written, be holy, for I am holy. We have this idea of holiness or um, obedience, basically. There's, there's this more, we are um, submitting to God's moral authority. And this is a continual process in our lives. And Peter writes to these believers and he's, he says, seeing that you have done this to a certain extent, I want you to do something after that. But I kind of want to look at this process that has already occurred in these believers' lives because it's, it's occurring in our lives too. This, this purification, right? And some might read this verse and say, well, what it's talking about is God purified us God is the one who's purified our hearts at salvation or at the moment of conversion when we were born again. God has purified our hearts. Well, that, I don't believe that's because it says that we, ha, we are the ones doing it. And the Bible never refers to salvation or redemption or justification it, as us being the active agents. God is always the agent of that. God is always the one doing that. In this, in this context, in this text, God is... Um, Peter is saying that you have been the ones, these believers have been the ones to purify themselves, their own hearts, right? They have been the ones to make this moral change, okay? And so that is, that is the, this is kind of the story of our lives in a verse. This idea of, of obedience, where we're constantly, we, we are being transformed. It's, it's the idea really of sanctification, of God changing us as we submit to Him, as we make conscious choices to submit to God, He is transforming us, right? And that should be, that should be the story of our lives. 
And I hope that you are in the place where Peter could write to you and tell you to do this thing because you have purified your, your soul in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren. In this process, we could, we could kind of look at it as, as recognizing patterns or instances of sin in our lives. Right? Recognizing those, repenting of them, and then choosing to replace those things with patterns of righteousness. Right? It's, it's the idea of, uh, in Ephesians, I believe it's in Ephesians 4, where you've got the put off, and then renew your mind, and then put on, right? You, you, what you do is you, you, you take certain things away, then you kind of change, you reorient yourself, and then you put certain things on. And that, that is the process, that is the process of being a follower of Jesus Christ, changing. Right? We talked about, we talked about on Sunday morning, if, if you were here, um, about, about how the, the grace of God educates us in Titus, remember, I think Titus 2, we went there and we, we looked at Titus 2.14 in the following verses and we saw how if, if you've really encountered the grace of God, if the grace of God has really become a part of your life, you will be changed. If you, if you have not been changed by the grace of God, then you probably didn't actually encounter God's grace. You encountered some, something else, right? It's not, I, I, I don't mean to be harsh by saying that, but if you haven't been changed by the gospel then it's probably not the, the true gospel. There's one true gospel, and that changes our lives. Okay, so first, first Peter 22, um, Peter is writing to these believers who have under they have undergone this process. They have chosen to obey God, and so there is a result of this process. Right? It says what unto unfeigned love of the brethren. That is the result of this, this decision, this obedience to submit ourselves to God and allow him to work in our lives, right? That putting off, renewing our minds and putting on, the, the result of that process is this, unfeigned love of the brethren, brotherly love. And I think that's maybe something that we might miss a, a, a lot, especially in our very independent American culture, our isolationist America, we, we, you know, we're not so much as we used to be isolated, but we are still very isolation and independent in our culture. Those kind of values to be self-sufficient, that is one of the highest values in our, I, I, and I think you would agree with me, in, in America, right? In America where we live, we want to be self-sufficient. We, we want to make our own way. We want to pull ourselves. And I, I agree with a lot of those values. Those, those are good values. To pull ourselves up by our own booster. I mean, th that's good. Capitalism, the free market, I, I like those things, okay? I do. That's a, that's a preference of mine, but I like those things. But those values have given us tendencies to reject codependence to, to a certain... And what I mean by codependence, I mean togetherness. There is... In the, if you look at the New Testament, the, especially in Ephesians, if you look at the book of Ephesians... It's, I, I've studied Ephesians a little bit, and I, I enjoy that book. And you, you see over and over, there's this togetherness aspect to the church. The fact that the church is not, you cannot have church, you, I mean, you can't have church in your house, but you cannot have church alone. And, you know, some people will say, well, you know, I'm, I'm not going to go to church today, and they might have a good reason why they can't. I'm not, you know, I'm not judging. We need to make church a priority, but... You know, maybe they can't go. To, so they, they'll say, well, I'll just have a, I'll just worship myself today. 
Okay, I understand what they're saying, and I'm glad that they're choosing to spend time with God alone. Like, that's, that's great, and we should do that on a regular basis. I'm all for all of those things. But spending time with God alone by yourself and, and worshiping alone at your house cannot replace the local church. By definition, church is an assembly. It's an assembly. It's, 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 it's together. There is no having church alone by yourself. The God, God instituted the local, Jesus Christ instituted the local church to be together. And you cannot have church just by yourself alone at your house. And I, you know, if you can't be a church, great. You know, maybe you can live stream a service somewhere else or you can spend some time reading your Bible. Great, that's awesome. Go ahead and do that if, if you're precluded from some way in going to church. But don't ever believe that you can replace um, spending time with other believers at the, at the house of God, so to speak, together with other believers, don't ever think you can replace that by spending time alone with God by yourself. That's, that's just not, that's not what church is. God has created the church for us to be together. And not just, and I've, I've been talking about meeting together, but not just meeting together, it's also the idea of, of living together. And we're going to see that with this idea of affection. Right? When it says brotherly love, it's not, it's not talking, it's, it's a different word for love than, than the word used later on in the verse when it says, gives the command to love one another. The first word, when you've been um, purified unto unfeigned love of the brethren, what that's talking about, it's, it's, it's an idea of affection. The kind of natural affection that happens between brothers. Like Philadelphia. <laughs> And I know, you know, Philadelphia, you, I don't know, you know, especially in football, they have this reputation of just being nasty people. Honestly, I've been to Philly and they, they, uh, they, they, those people are really nice up there. I might be a little biased for those of you who knows that my girlfriend, who know that my, that my girlfriend is from Philadelphia. Her name, Sarah, she's from Philadelphia. But those, honestly, they are pretty nice up there. They're, they're not really jerks like we imagine them to be because the Eagles fans, I don't most people in here actually follow college, so I don't know why I'm talking about professional football. But the Eagles fans, they, can, they are known as mean and hateful individuals. They really are. Um, but honestly, the word Philadelphia, it means brotherly love, the city of brotherly love, even though in reality it's often not no, so brotherly and loving. But this, this word, love of the brethren, it is an affectionate tie. It's not even, it's not so much a choice of the will to say, I, you know, despite your flaws and your faults, I'm going to love you and I'm going to put you first. That's not the kind of love that it's talking about here. The kind of love is it's an affectionate love. It's a natural love. It's something that, that just springs up out of you because of certain circumstances in your life, right? You know, if you have a brother, you just have a natural affection for you. I haven't, even though my brother's annoy the tar out of me sometimes and they make me mad and I think that they're, 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 they're stupid sometimes, I still love them. I still have this natural affection that springs up out of me for them and that really can't change because they're my brother. I, as long as I can remember that they're my brother, that I, I'm going to think about them in that light because of that natural affection for them and um, that's the kind of natural affection that it's talking about the believers have for each other when they um, are sanctified. When they grow in the Lord, spiritual maturity, the result of spiritual maturity will always be um, an, a natural affection for other believers. That, that, that true obedience to God 
looks like an abandonment of self. An abandonment of self. Too often in Christianity, it becomes something where I'm going to have my personal, and you know, I know a lot of good Christians, and, and it's great. that they, they have their own personal walk with God. They, they consistently spend time with God, and listening to how he speaks to them in his word, and praying to him, talking to him themselves, and they memorize scripture, and they're involved in the local church. They're serving other people. They're doing all these things. But it's so easy for us in, in our culture to become isolationists to where, well, I have my relationship with God, but I'm, I'm going to kind of keep that to myself, and I'm, I'm going to be righteous, and I'm going to do really well. But then we have this kind of judgmental attitude towards other people. We, we don't live together with other people. It's like, well, I know that I'm doing right by God, but all these other people, you know, they're, they're, they're still figuring things out. So I'm just going to kind of do my thing, and I'm going to be the super godly spiritual person, and I'm going to leave all those other people who are lesser. You know, th that is not Christianity at all. Christianity is, by definition, reaching out to those other people and bringing them alongside with you. It's investing in those other people. That is part of our spiritual lives investing in other people and showing them love and compassion and actually having spiritual conversations with them. And what I mean, when I say spiritual, I just mean relating to God. Your spirit, that's the part of you that relates to God. Right? And so, and so when I say spiritual, it's something just having to do with your relationship with God. And that's, that's what a spiritual conversation is. talking about just saying, hey, you know, I read this in my Bible the other day. Or, how are you doing? Or, you know, and they might say, well, I'm doing good, work is like this, and, you know, my kids or my family or whatever is like this, and blah, blah, blah. But then, w true fellowship, what the Bible means by fellowship is, well, how are you really doing? How, how are you really, and that's, that's the kind of affection, the kind of togetherness that, that is resultant of true spiritual maturity, of true obedience to God. When we really obey God, it becomes this togetherness aspect that we can't divorce from, you know, well, I, I have my own personal walk with God and I really love God and I spend time with Him. No, but are you also investing in other people and, and having true fellowship? And I'm, I'm thankful for a church where we, we, you know, we talk together and, you know, we talk about, you know, the Bulldogs or the weather or what's going on in soccer when soccer season or, you know, with softball or we, we talk about what's going on in the different ministries. And, a lot of times when we have those kinds of conversations, excuse me, this, our spiritual lives kind of bleed into that, right? If we're really walking with God, we start to mention how we're doing spiritually. It just kind of bleeds into that. And that's awesome. That's great. But we can never forget that fellowship is not just talking, uh, you know, with people at church or having food and talking with people at church. True fellowship is living together with God. If you, I mean, I, and I don't really have time to do a whole theological study of fellowship in the New Testament. But if you look at fellowship in the New Testament, what it looks like is living together with God. Having communion together with God. When we sing praises, that's, that's fellowship. That's true fellowship. When we are, everybody's singing in the congregation. And that's why congregational worship is so important. And I, I hope that you understand that the Bible is very clear about that. It's not just something that we do because it's fun. It's the Bible commands us to sing, and that's what's so healthy about it is when we're, we're all singing, and we're all singing praises to God. We're talking to Him, and we're, 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 we're telling Him who He is, and we're thanking Him for what He's done, and all these different things. Um, that is true fellowship. 
when we pray together, and, and, and you know, maybe only one person is actually speaking audibly, but all the other people are praying along and they're listening and they're amening maybe in their heart or they're nodding, you're nodding your head in agreement and you're actually along with them. That is true fellowship, right? That is, what the, that is the kind of affection that comes from, from true obedience um, to, to God. True holiness is marked by affection. Too often in Christianity uh, or church or whatever, it becomes another avenue of self-worship. It becomes, well, I'm following all these rules and these standards. I'm not saying these words, and I'm saying these words. I'm going to church at this time, and you know, I'm not going to these places. Or I'm, I'm hanging out with these people, or I'm eating and drinking these things, and I'm not eating and drinking these things, or however you want to put it. Whatever kind of Christian, you know, and those, those things are good. Holy, those things spring out. You know, um, Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. Right? If you love Jesus, follow him. Do what he says. Um, but too often it becomes about, I keep all those things, therefore I'm a Christian. And it becomes, it, it becomes well, I'm so spiritual. And it becomes self-affirming. And it's just another way for us to lift ourselves up and to say, look at all these things that I've accomplished in my spiritual life. Look at all these things that I've done for Jesus. Look at all these services that I've attended, these ministries that I'm involved in. Look at all these, you know, even some people might say, even all these people that I've led to the Lord. And it, it becomes, you know, legal, it, it, it becomes another avenue of self-worship, whether it's legalism, as in I need, you need to follow all these rules to please God, or it's arena culture where you're just performing and desiring praise from other people and you're desiring to praise other people and you just want to be entertained. Whatever the circumstance may be, Christianity must not become another avenue for us to worship ourselves and idolize ourselves and make ourselves into little idols that we stick on the thrones of our hearts. No. Christianity is self-abandonment. Right? And, and what that looks like is even if you're not really, and I'm not, I'm not really naturally that much of, I mean, I have, excuse me, objectively speaking, I do have, you know, I, I, I don't want to say, because if I say this, then you're going to be like, well, Will, you do so well in talking. You might think that about, I don't know. But um, naturally, I don't really have that many gifts when it comes to interacting with people. My, my brother Andrew is actually here. Most of you probably didn't get to talk to him, but he is way more gifted than I am in talking to people and getting to know them and being likable. I'm just not that likable, really, honestly, I'm not. Um, but even for people like me, and maybe you're in the same boat, even for, it, it is, you know what? Even though in myself I don't enjoy talking to other people and I don't enjoy investing and getting involved and people are so messy and I just kind of, kind of do my... Even though I don't enjoy all those things, I'm going to abandon myself in this scenario. I'm going to say, myself, I am not important. What's important is that God has called me to invest in these people's lives and to be involved and to love them and, and to have real, godly, sincere affection for them. And so I'm going to put myself to the wayside and I'm going to invest in these people's lives. That is true Christianity. It's marked by self abandonment, right? It's not just self-abandonment in the sense of, well, I'm denying myself, you know, worldly pleasures. I'm not going to drink these things and I'm, I'm not going to do these things unless I'm married to them and blah, blah, blah. All these different rules that we have. You know, it's not just those things in which we deny ourselves. It's also in these things where we invest in, a, it, you know, it, it takes a certain amount of our pride 
to, to, to go to someone and to reach out to them. It just does. By human nature, our pride prevents us automatically from being close to someone else. And it, it takes a certain humility to say, God, I'm going to invest in these people for your kingdom. Really quickly, I, I have belabored points that I did not intend to. But Ma- Matthew 22, Matthew 22. And I, I, I just want to make a point from this and then we'll be done with this passage. But, but Matthew 22, the first and great commandment, right? The Pharisees, they're um, trying to question, catch Jesus basically in a lie, trying to trip him up, basically. And then in verse, so this, this lawyer comes to them and he says, Master, verse 36 of Matthew 22, Master, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. Verse 39, And the second is like unto it, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Everything hinges on these two commandments. That's what Jesus says. If you don't have these two commandments, you don't have any worshiping the one true God. You don't have any actual religion that worships, Je- that worships Jehovah God. Without any of these, you don't have that. It's funny to me, when it, whenever I've read this passage, in the past when I have read this passage, it's funny to me that this lawyer guy that's trying to trip Jesus up, he says, what is the greatest commandment? What is the most important one? He asked Jesus for one answer. And Jesus gives him two. And I don't, maybe you're not, maybe you don't think weird like I do. And so maybe that, that didn't, maybe you just took it and that's probably better that you would just take it and understand, I don't know. But um, I, that always like, why? Why? Jesus does things like that all the time. He, he answers the question, but he doesn't actually answer the question. And what he's really doing whenever he does that is he's actually answering the real question that they have. They, they say one thing and that we do that as human beings as well, right? We do that all the time. We, we, Say we want to know one thing, but in reality, we're really wondering about something. And that's, that's what Jesus does. He answers the real question. The real question is, what's the, what's the main thing? What's the main thing of, of worshiping God? And he says, well, love God with all your heart, soul, with everything that you have, love God. But also, love your neighbor as yourself. And when I read this passage, what, what that says to me in, in reading this, what Jesus is saying is, you cannot divorce worshiping God and loving him, and, and, and having your own personal relationship with God, you can never divorce that from loving other people. If you are constantly alone and by your, and I'm not saying that anyone in this room is like this, because I'm pretty sure you're not. You come on Wednesday nights. You're not like this, really. But I'm, for, for, for sake of making a point, if you are, are alone all the time by yourself, and you're just like, becoming more spiritual by yourself and you're just discovering on your own and you're doing the self and you just have this amazing walk with God. You don't actually walk with God really all that closely because God says to love me and to know me is also to love other people and to know them as well. That is part of the essence of Christian life. You can't take one without the other. Right? So we must love other people. There must be this aspect of reaching out to others to our, to our spiritual lives. Without that, we're not really that, all that spiritual. We're not that in, that in touch with... Because by necessity, and, and, and also, um, John 13, 35, by this shall all men know that you're my disciples, 
If you have love to one, what is, what is the mark of a disciple of Jesus? Someone that loves other people. If you have love one to another. Okay, so that, that is the result of real spiritual maturity. Right? If, if you're just uh, uh, accumulating all these rules and following all these rules to yourself and becoming this spiritual giant, so to speak, without reaching out to other people, your, your religion is vain. I mean, true religion and undefiled before God is this, to, to, to love the widows and, and the fatherless. And that, I mean, that's what James says. That's what real religion is, to reach out to other people and to love them and to know them. So real Christianity, the result, is, is really affection. Is really affection. And we should desire in our hearts for God to do a work that we would be changed to love other people. And really quickly, I want to make a note of what, what this tells us. This, this passage gives us some hope, actually. Because a lot of us don't have that natural inclination to love other people. Right? Other people can be annoying. Other people can stink right? Sometimes it's not fun to be around other people. But this passage tells us that God had changed these believers. He had been the one to give them this unfeigned love. This, it's, and it's not like some fabricated affectation in their lives. It's, it's sincere. It's unfeigned. It's not, it's not fake. This is a real affection, a deep-seated affection that they had for other people. And God can do that in our hearts. And I hope that, you know, as you grow in the Lord, that you desire for God to continually work that process out in your life. That you would desire to love others, to live along, to be together. Not just, the gospel is together. Jesus died for all men. Right? We're going to be together with other people for all of eternity. Okay? And so, the, the gospel is intended for togetherness. Then we're going to look, and I'll go a, li- a little bit over seven tonight, but we're going to look at, at this command here, right? So we first of all looked at this process. Next, the result we saw, our, our affection. Next, I want to look at, thirdly, our responsibility, which is love. Love. So the first one is kind of a natural, just it, it kind of springs out of you affection. It's a brotherly love that just kind of happens on its own. The second kind of love, though, that we see here that's a command, right? And whenever we see a command, I like to think of it this way. When we see a command in the Bible, we can look at it as like a fork in the road. Because we, we have an opportunity there to either obey God or to disobey God, right? And so it's, this, it's an imperative or a command. Right? That, that's what all imperatives, it's always when God gives us a command, it's an opportunity to disobey or to, to, do, to obey God. To obey, excuse me, I did obey on this side. Obey or to disobey God. Okay, and so the, the command that we're given here, this opportunity that we have, is to love one another with a pure heart fervently. And I'm sure if you've, and it, mo, I think most of you have been in church for quite a while, so you've probably heard quite a bit of, of preaching on agape or you know a godly biblical biblical love a true love that that chooses that that makes decisions the kind of love that Jesus has right that a love that is demonstrated right an evident love that's that's agape love it's and this kind of love is also for the be- the, the best of the other individual for the best of the object right so so if um, so brother Eric is the object of my agape love. I want the best for, for Brother Eric in his life. And the best in our lives, we know, is always God, 
right? So, so basically, agape love, the, the object is always, it's other people, but the indirect object is to love them to God. It's to love them to God. Okay, so that, that's the kind of love, and I'm just going to run over those just as by definition. But, but also, we're going to look at the couple qualifiers here. With a pure heart. With a pure heart. And it means like a clean heart. And I, I think when I read this, my mind immediately goes, and I believe that's the, this is the application. As it's talking about motive. As believers... Oh, let, me, let, me, let me go here. Let me, let me, let's talk about this. In the South, we, we have a saying, and I say we because I'm one of you now. Aren't you so happy? But um, we have a saying that um, bless their heart. And we'll say, that is like, I, I don't even, that, we, we talk about how millennials and Generation Z and, and people after that, they have all these words like bet, that doesn't really mean any one thing. It's really contextual. and You have no idea what they're talking about. That's In the South, That's what, what does bless your heart mean? It could mean a whole variety of things. A whole var- It could mean, you know, I have pity on them or I'm actually kind of mad at them or they're kind of a jerk or they're incapable or, you know, they're, they're really in a rough spot right now. Who knows what bless... But a lot of times when we say bless your heart, we're not actually wanting God to bless them. It's more like, bless their heart. We are kind of, you're kind of, and I don't know what it is about this, but in the, in the South, Southern hospitality, people can like, and I, I don't mean to be accusatory, I think, but I think you would, a lot of people in this room would agree with me. You can put a smile on your face, but stab them in the back, right? That's just what happens. And I don't, I'm not accusing anyone in this room. I think everyone in this room, I, I could probably say, it's not really that way. But in this, we just, and, and other, other parts of the country have the same, other cultures have the same thing. But it's just something that I find really funny in this. You know, people will have a smile on it, but they will be so mad at you. They will, they will be, you know, in their mind, it's like, you know, Texas Chainsaw Massacre or something. They're, they're tearing you up. You know, it's, it's just reality. And in Christianity, we can have this, you know, affectation, like I taught, this feigned love of, you know, my love is motivated by, well, I have to put, up, put, on, a, put on a show and have everyone else notice that I'm a loving and genuine and good person and have to keep up the appearance. But it's not actually loving them because I, I, I love them. I'm choosing to put them first. I, no, I'm loving them because I love myself and I want everyone else to see how great of a person I am, right? And, and so that's, that's what a pure or a clean heart is referring to. That after God has given us, he's transformed us and he's given us this, this natural affection for the brethren, for, for, the peop- for the Christians around us, especially in our local church. After that has happened, then we are to take that and put on a love that chooses to love them because we love them. Right? Uh, and it, it's a good, this is a good illustration. Why does Jesus love me? Why does Jesus love me? Is it because Will's a really, you know, handsome and de- debonair guy? Is is it, is it because Will's super nice and he's super witty or Will's really an eloquent, I'm not an eloquent, but is it because Will's an eloquent speaker? No, Jesus loves me because he wants to. 
that when you boil it down, when you get to the heart of the matter, Jesus loves us because he wants to. There's not really, we don't bring value, right? We, we could, you know, you sit down, what, what do you bring, what do you bring to the table? What, what do you, what do you, you know, what do you have to offer me? When we sit at the table with God, nothing. I, I just got myself. And God wants us. That's great. And that's the kind of love that we also need to have. This, this love that's not motivated by, well, I'm going to get this out of it, or these people are going to see me doing this, and so they're going to think well of me. No, I'm, I love people because I choose to love them in another, where they're at. I'm not loving who I want them to be. I'm not loving them because I think they can. No, I'm loving them because I choose to love them, and there, there's nothing more to it than that. Right, that, that is a pure heart, but then fervently. And I'll talk about fervently, and, and I'll say one thing, and then we'll, we, all, we got through one verse. Amen. Amen. Tell Pastor Phil. Tell Pastor Phil he's using way too many verses, because I used one in like 35 minutes. But um, I'm just kidding. I just, I, I like to hear myself talk, and that's what my mom used to tell me. <laughs> anyway, um, fervently. Um, this is an, uh, the idea of intensity. Right, uh, later on in Second Peter, the, the Bible talks about how the, the elements, the very fabric of the universe will melt, and it's kind of the idea of like a, a nuclear meltdown, so to speak. They will melt with a fervent heat. It's intense. It's, it's almost like hot. And I, I want, this is kind of the main thrust that I'd like to get across tonight, that we would be very intentional about loving other people. About investing in, and about being together as a local church. And, I, you know, I, I see that here. I'm not saying that we don't do that, but Peter probably saw that a little bit in these believers' lives. And he was encouraging more of it. And I'd like to encourage more of it tonight. I I think that's what God would have us to do, is to, to, love, to be intentional about loving other people. To be intense about it. As in to say, this is my role. This is my, this is, this is my thing. We own it. To, to, I, to take ownership. That's, that's kind of like what I'd like to, 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 how I'd like to translate fervent, is to take ownership of something and to be, this is my thing. This is what God's called me to do as a believer, that I would love other people, that I would put their best ahead of everything else in my, that I would desire for them to grow closer to God, that I would invest in them, that I, that I would show them the love of Christ, that I would love them not because, you know, I might get something out of it or not, not because other people might see me doing it or not because I feel bad, but just because I know I have to. God has called me. To, that's what a believer does. That's what the gospel does in my life. And so I am going to love them for them. Not for who I want them to be, not for who they should be, but to love other believers for them. That is the Christian life. That, that is what we do as believers. That is our responsibility. And the thing about it is that this kind of love, unfeigned, clean heart, no, not faking it, pure motives, and intense, love. It's next to impossible. In fact, it really is impossible in and of ourselves. And, and what this intense and, and um, clean motived responsibility that we have 
should cause us to do in our lives is to go to God and say, God, I need your help. I need your grace to help me to love these people. That's what I love about the Christian. It's, it's like this, this circular thing where, you know, God calls us to do something. Well, we need God's grace to do that. Well, I need God's grace to ask for God's grace. And I need God's grace to ask for God's You know, it's all of God's grace. It's, it's God helping us and giving us grace to be able to do things. Ultimately, it, you know, there has to be a, a decision made in our hearts. God's not going to force us to do anything. I think that's evident in the Bible that he gives us a free will to make choices. But after we make that choice, we're continually going back and say, God, I need your help to, to want these things. I, I, need to be made, I need to be made willing to be made willing. I, I can't be made willing on my, I need I can't be willing on my own. I need God to make me willing to do these things. I, I need God's help. And that's what grace does in our lives. It, this hope that we have, it God show, like I said earlier, God shows us in this passage it can really change a personality. Is it natural for every do you think it was natural for every one of the people that received this letter to be a people person and to love others? Was that a natural thing for every one of them? No, but the Bible tells us that God had changed them and given them an unfeigned love of the brethren. God gives us hope. And later on in this passage, God, and I, I, I'll kind of use a couple verses and I'll be done, so I'm not going to use the one verse, but it says, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. And for all flesh is as grass. So the Bible is incorrupt. The, the seed that we have been born again by. It is incorruptible. It's not like everything else. All flesh is grass. Everything in this world, all the material universe, all of our physical bodies, they wither away and they falleth away. But the word of the Lord endureth forever, and this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. We've been given a powerful, eternal, incorruptible message that God has given to us. And this is the basis that we have to love other people truly as brothers and sisters in Christ. That is, that is what God, God, is, uh, God has given us a new birth by this incorruptible seed inside of us. We are connected to God in a real and powerful way, something eternal. Right? We, are connect, we are not connected to something that is temporary that will fall away. We are connected to something that, that will last for all time, that is powerful, and that God, God that work is, works in us, that both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Right? God has given us the power that we need. And I'll, I'll read this quote, and then we'll be done. When you give yourself in obedience to the plan and purpose of God, what you're doing is you're clearing the decks of your heart to be able to love other people. That's, that's what the Christian, we're clearing the decks of our hearts to be able to love God and other people. And I hope that you'd see your Christian life that way as well. That loving others is an inseparable part of the gospel and of our relationships with Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. God, we thank you.